Well, let's continue on from Palm Sunday to Good Friday and now Resurrection Sunday. Talking through some of these themes. You know, the world in which we live, as we've been discussing, it's clamoring for some kind of transformation. There's a recognition. There's an inherent recognition. Something is not right. Something is off. Something about me needs changing. And so as a result, there's no shortage of various types of transformation being offered in surrounding culture. One podcast that I listen to regularly just to get a, a sense of what's happening in culture is hosted by a writer from, from, the, from the Atlantic. It's called Plain English. And the most recent episode bears this out from Tuesday. It's entitled Myth-Busting Wellness Hacks, Cold Plunges, Coffee, Alcohol, and Fitness Trackers. And the purpose of this episode, and, and actually one of the reasons why I appreciated a lot of what was said, the purpose is to draw scrutiny to some of the claims that people make about these various, what they were calling wellness hacks, these various things you can do to transform yourself, to find transformation. And so the host of the podcast brings in these expert guests that he says are, and these are his words, ideal guides in this hype-filled world of biomarkers, biohacks, and fitness. You know, these kinds of claims are made. So, you know, do, do you want to burn off all your fat while, while simultaneously ending all depression and anxiety? Here's what you do. Go take a plunge in an ice-cold bath until you start shivering, and then continue shivering for as long as your body can take it, Thankfully, they busted this myth, and we don't have to do this. Um, a limited amount of benefit for what feels like a lot of work. All right. But the point is, there's this, you know, constant over-promising in the culture. And that's because people doing the over-promising know that there's, you know, there's just a ton of profit here. There's a ton of money to be made off of those who recognize that their lives are not as they should be, this kind of collective understanding of humanity, they want something to offer them a new way of life. So they overpromise. You know, people overpromise. People buy right in. Do you want to ha have a, a monetized YouTube channel? Start posting videos with these kinds of overpromises. But but the overpromising is, is even more fundamental than that. So two articles that hit the news cycle on Easter weekend. And I don't think that these um, news stories were hitting a widespread Easter weekend. I don't think the fact that it, that it was being um, printed yesterday, April 8th, the day before Easter, is any coincidence. So two articles, here they are. First article reads, here's the headline, exclusive, first anti-aging pills to hit the shelves in 2028. Expert predicts, as Silicon Valley races to conquer death. So the, the point of this article is to demonstrate how these hedge fund billionaires, the guy who invented chat GTP along with um, Jeff Bezos, they're, they're investing $159 million, $3 billion of their own funds into this company that's in Silicon Valley whose purpose is to race to conquer death. The other article, Could You Live Forever? Experts claim humans could achieve immortality by 2030. And one futurist even says we'll be able to attend our own funerals in a new body. 
And so what's being offered here, right? So there's a, there's a promise of resurrected life, resurrected bodies, that if we can just push forward with enough human ingenuity, then we can defeat death. Why? Because there's a common understanding that we're perishing. In every age, in every generation, we know, we know that humanity is fragile, that we're mortal, that life is way too short. And so in every generation, in every century, you have people attempting, even throughout the Middle Ages, through things like alchemy, all the way to now, with nanobots. We're attempting, we're striving after conquering death, and yet our, our own intuition knows that this is foolish. We're born, we live, we die. No one can avoid this, and so again, we see kind of a basis for overpromising because humanity is perishing, and we'll do anything to get out from under that perishing. And, you know, we've been looking over the course of this past week together, starting at the end of John 2 extending all the way now until 321, in which Jesus makes a promise. It's a promise of resurrected life. So last Sunday on, on um, Palm Sunday, and, and then Good Friday, we unpacked the end of chapter 2 all the way to 315 on Friday night, where Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, this teacher in Israel. And we called this conversation the problem and the passion because we concluded together that unless we understand, you know, the central problem facing humanity, unless we understand the nature of our problem, the severity of our problem, we'll never understand Christ's passion, the events of Holy Week leading all the way to the cross on Good Friday. We won't understand the cross unless we understand the seriousness of human depravity. Okay, so now this morning we move from his passion, Jesus' death on our behalf, the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross in our place as our substitute to the promise, the passion and the promise. The promise that he holds out because of what he accomplished. And this promise, in this promise, we actually see the good news, the gospel, at the center of the scriptures. What is the gospel? Well, this word gospel you've heard it before you know some people hear it and there's confusion related to what it means because it, people think is that a kind of music right is that because there's music associated with gospel christian music is it um affiliated with some different kind of belief from within christendom and so there's confusion but when somebody asks what is the gospel whether they realize it or not what they're essentially asking is what is it that the bible has to say about the good news of Jesus. So that's shorthand for gospel. The, what, is the, what does the Bible say about Jesus? What's the good news about Jesus? And here in John 3, 16 to 21, what we find are three statements about the gospel that's going to help us understand both what the gospel is and how that gospel actually works itself out to bring about the kind of life that we desire but that's so elusive to us, so slippery, so out of reach. Brings about this kind of eternal life that we desire, the defeat of death that we so strongly desire, but that's so elusive to humanity that we continue to strive after, but, but we can't reach. And so in the text this morning, we see the gospel summarized, the gospel clarified, the gospel illustrated. Okay, so the gospel clarified, we see this short statement that essentially sums up what the good news is at the heart of the scriptures. 
The gospel clarified because as with any short statement, more needs to be said on it so that we can avoid confusion. And the gospel illustrated to make sure we understand what he's saying about the nature of the kind of new life that Jesus holds out to us. John employs a metaphor to help us make this connection. So a gospel summary, a gospel clarifier, a gospel illustration. Let's begin in verse 16 with the summary. Again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, this, this maybe used to be the most well-known, the most often quoted verse in the Bible from surrounding culture. You know, whether you had a lot of knowledge of the Bible or you had none, everyone kind of had a working understanding of or familiarity with John 3.16. Today, it's, that verse is probably Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged, that everyone's fairly familiar with. But, you know, I remember watching major football events and, um, you know, you see that guy in the, and there's always that guy in the end zone holding up John, that sign, John 3.16. It was on literature that Christians would hand out in order that people might turn to this passage and read these words. And I'm not throwing shade. I'm saying for good reason, you know, for good reason that verse was mentioned. Because here we really do have a short, succinct summary of what it is that Jesus came to accomplish. Also, why he came to accomplish it, what it actually does in the life of the believer. So let me read the summary again, and then we'll break it down together. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son. So gave his only son is talking about both incarnation and atonement. It's talking about both the moment when Jesus came into this world. When he was born into this world. That he gave in that sense. As well as that he gave him over in death. Okay, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the father gave the son up in death for the purpose of death that we might have life in him. That's the idea. In other words, humankind is perishing. I'll defend my grammar on that in just a minute. But we're perishing because even though we were created by a good and loving God who desired to be our God, and he desired for us to be his people, we've all attempted to serve and worship other things and ourselves rather than God. We've taken things some of them even good things, things that he's given us. And we've made them ultimate things of first importance. We place our ultimate hope in them. We put them at the very center of our lives. We put ourselves at the very center of our lives. And these things simply cannot bear that weight. They weren't meant to bear that weight. This really destroys us. It destroys humanity. We see examples of this everywhere. We decided that we knew better than God about how to be God. So we attempted to overthrow his good and right rule. We are creation. And I want you to think about that this morning because it helps us understand what John is saying here. We are creation who attempted to overthrow our good creator. We are rebellious subjects who attempted to overthrow our good king. More to be said on that in a minute, but because of this, humankind is perishing. And, you know, evidence of it perishing is ubiquitous. It's all around us. It's, just open a newspaper. Turn on the evening news. 
pay any attention to what's happening in the world. It's not something we have to convince each other about. And yet John's words about the gospel, his shorthand gospel definition, his summary, begins with the phrase, God so loved. God so loved the world. It's a radical thing to say, and for two reasons. First, it shows the extent of God's love for us. This word for is explanatory. It's giving the basis of, right? So in order to understand what John is talking about in 16, we have to go back and hear what Jesus said in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is what we focused on on Good Friday. Here we have what is probably, I think, the end of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, the end of that conversation in the previous section. Jesus says the reason he was born was to die, to be lifted to the cross, that all who look upon him might have resurrected life. Look to the cross and live. And now John begins his own excursus here by pointing back to these words and saying, you know, the reason for that The basis for that, the reason Jesus was lifted up on the cross was centrally because of the love of God. The love of God for the world. Jesus' mission was to come and die. And that mission was the direct consequence of God's love. It was the fullest expression of God's love. But we see this expression of love even more clearly, you know, when secondly we notice the object of that love. God so loved the world. You know, and and when we read that, I think, you know, sometimes I think familiarity with a passage that we've heard since childhood, that we've all memorized, that we all know really well, it can kind of desensitize us to what it is saying. This is where I think we miss John 3.16 in a lot of ways because this, this phrase, the world, this term, this term, the world, it's a technical term for John. He's, he's throughout his gospel, and I've made the case for it before. I'll make it again moving forward because it's throughout his gospel account. But throughout this account, he's trying to communicate something with it. And in order to understand this passage, we need to remind ourselves of this. You know, when John talks about the cosmos, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about something that's positive in a creation, Genesis 1 sense. He's not talking about it as even neutral, where there's like good and evil, you know, trying to discern what's good and evil. You know, when John uses this word, it's this technical term, and um, we saw it right away in the prologue. Here's the, the working definition that we used, a collaboration of a couple of different commentaries. The world in John is the created world system or the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs, in active rebellion against its maker. It's the created world order in active rebellion against its maker, especially human beings, human affairs. So let's put the the phrase together again. The reason that Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die was because God so loved that world. The creator so loved the human beings he created who actively rebelled against him that he willingly took their place at the cross. The good king loved his subjects so much, his subjects who attempted to overthrow and usurp him violently, that he walked out of his palace into their village 
where he willingly died for this group of rebels that crucified him. That's what's caught up here in this initial phrase. You know, if the world is, is the created order of human beings and human affairs, an act of rebellion against its maker, then, you know, I would, I would think that the reason the maker would come would be to destroy it. The reason the king would leave his palace would be to bring judgment, to purge his kingdom, to clear out his kingdom of all wrongdoing and evil with an army behind him. But instead, he comes on a rescue mission, knowing the only way a rescue is possible is if he gives his own life, if he stands in their place. I mean, really, we can't jump ahead of this too quickly. He gives his own life for this sinful people. Okay, the grammar here uses the indicative instead of the infinitive. We don't have to do a grammar lesson on Easter Sunday, but listen. It's useful for us to understand here that what that essentially means is that John really wants to emphasize the intensity, the strength, the intensity of God's love for us. Rather than simply expressing it as a, as, as a statement of fact, right, um, which we would see with the infinitive, we see the indicative. We see the strength of its intensity. And the reason that's necessary for John to talk about the intensity of God's love is the next clause. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His one and only son. So think back to what we already read and studied together in the prologue. John was describing Jesus in these terms. He said, like, this is what, this is who my account is all about. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the word that eternally pre-existent second person of the trinity and and then he says that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth the only son from the father same terminology that we see in 316 who was it that offered his life for us that we might live listen to how one commentator described it i quoted when we were preaching through John 1, the glory displayed in the incarnate word is the kind of glory a father grants to his one and only best loved son. And this father is God himself. Thus it is nothing less than God's glory that John and his friends witnessed in this word made flesh, Jesus, right? So it was this one and only best loved son of the father, displaying the father's glory, who the father now gives over to die so that those who rebelled against him might live. Paul's words in Romans 8 that Tracy read for us come to mind here. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him now graciously give us all things? And then she goes on, she went on to read about Resurrection power, God's love that can't be separated from us. So the idea is that the world, representing fallen and rebellious human beings, does not and cannot love God. We cannot love God. We cannot love God unless he first loves us. We cannot come to God unless he first comes to us. We cannot move toward God unless he first moves toward us. 
And yet God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, though that's the very thing we deserve. We are perishing and we deserve to perish in an ultimate sense. But have eternal life. That's the very thing Jesus deserved. Jesus came, lived the life we should have lived, but failed to live because we were rebels. He lived the life we failed to live. He deserved to be given life with God, embraced by the Father. We deserved death and judgment. But instead, he willingly took death and judgment, what we deserved, what I deserved, so that we could have resurrected life, which is what he deserved. This is the gospel summarized, the good news at the heart of the scriptures. But perhaps we have some unanswered questions in this summary. John seems to anticipate some. For instance, since God came on a rescue mission, since Jesus' coming and his cross are, are the central expression of God's love for us, is the implied idea here that eventually no one will perish? As some have attempted to argue. If, if as we'll, we'll read right now, God did not send Jesus to condemn, but to save, does that mean no one is condemned? So here we move from the gospel summarized to the gospel clarified. There's some clarifiers John needs to make. Verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, and, and, uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, the only son of God. So here we see some clarifiers. It's true that God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but rather that the world might be saved. That's true. In many ways, it's a restatement of the summary in verse 16. He's restating the reality that the primary purpose of God putting on flesh and dwelling among us was to save. And you know, but, but what it should remind us of are texts that we've preached through before at Gospel Life, like Genesis 6 through 9 and the flood accounts, the flood narratives. In which, what do we see, you know? We talked about this at some length when we preached through Genesis. But, but we don't see in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, we don't see firsthand accounts of those in the flood being judged. What do we find firsthand accounts of? Those on the ark being saved. Because that's the primary emphasis of the author. It doesn't mean there wasn't judgment. Okay. Same thing is true with Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the firsthand accounts that we read about are Lot and his family being delivered, being rescued, being saved? We don't have firsthand accounts of the judgment outside of just a general statement of destruction, right? And that's because, listen, it doesn't mean, as some have attempted to argue, John 3.16 doesn't mean that nobody will be condemned. In fact, such an argument would have to stop completely short of verse 18. Just rip 18 out of our Bibles. In which we learn the primary reason he did he didn't come to condemn the world is because the world's already condemned. Like it's condemned the moment, the, the moment sin entered into it. The world was condemned in, in Genesis 3, right? Now this, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have the authority to stand as judge, nor does it mean that he won't return one day in judgment because John will later write about Jesus returning in Revelation, which we also preached through recently. He returns in Revelation to bring judgment to the world. So we could ask, wait a minute, did John change his mind here? 
You know, because he wrote, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved. But then John later on pictures Jesus coming back with a sword, bringing judgment. So did John change, change his mind between Genesis, or sorry, John 3, 17 and the end of Revelation? No. He's not disputing the reality that Jesus will bring judgment and condemnation in the future, that he has the authority to do so. He's saying that we already stand condemned. So there was no act of formal pronouncement from Jesus that was needed to be made. We, we already stood guilty. It's like imagine a judge going to see an inmate that he had convicted to a crime, visit him in the prison house. And he comes in, sitting across from the plexiglass, the inmate is seated on the other side in the orange jumpsuit and they both pick up the phone, right? The judge doesn't need to issue a formal condemnation of the individual across the glass. Why? Because he's already been condemned. He's already guilty, you know? That's the idea. Listen, it's not like, he, it's not like Jesus came into a neutral world where he condemned some. He had to kind of figure out who are the good people, who are the bad people. I'm going to condemn the ones who are evil I'm going to, so that I can help save those who are good. Everyone was already condemned. And he offers a means by which we can be made right again. But if we reject him, if we don't believe, that condemnation remains. You know, imagine the judge saying, like, I'm going to issue you a stay of adjudication. And that person just, like, hanging up the phone saying, I don't want it. Don't talk to me. It's like the judge doesn't need to yell, arrest him. <laughs> arrest this man. He's in prison. He just remains there. That's the idea. It's like one of my favorite games to play in college with large groups of people in the Moody Student Center, shout out, okay, I was called Mafia. And uh, so, okay, students here know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to use that to help us understand this, this, this gospel clarifier, right? Because it's this game in which everyone pretends to be a part of a town, part of a world, community of people. Everyone gets a card, tells you what character that you play in this world. So some people are neutral. They're just citizens, just random citizens trying to live Live a life, you know, and then some are villains. They're the mafia, the troublemakers. Some people are kind of the heroes, the doctor, the sheriff, but the idea is, you know, if you're a citizen, you're coming into that world and you don't know what's what. If you're the doctor, if you're the sheriff, you're coming into that world, you don't know who's, who's what. And the whole task is to identify who are the ones who are evil, who are the ones who are good, and, and the whole task is to condemn the evil ones to protect the good ones. But this is not, that's the task of the game, this is not what Jesus did for us. In this world that we live in, all of us have mafia cards. We've already had a pronouncement of condemnation upon us. Nobody here is just a citizen. No one's innocent. We've all been proclaimed guilty already. And yet Jesus came to save despite the reality of our sin. And, and so, so to make sure we understand, we move from the gospel summarized in 16, clarified in 17 and 18, to now the gospel illustrated, because granted, mafia is not perfect illustration, to help us understand the gospel. So John gives us a better one, verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment, means verdict. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates 
the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to light, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So listen, this new life in Jesus brings about transformation. That's the idea, but, but, but not the way that we tend to think in which the transformation is the pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, go plunge yourself into an ice bath until you shiver for 20 minutes kind of transformation where you got to do this thing that then brings about some level of help or aid. Like that's how our minds immediately work when, it, when we think transformation. But John employs the use of a metaphor to make sure that we don't do that. We don't see, see that as the nature of the transformation. The verdict is just as he already described in the prologue, so we preached through this already. The light has come into the world, but people, all of us, loved darkness rather than light because their works, all of our works, were evil. Everyone who does wicked things all of us, hates the light and does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. Right? So when we see for everyone who does wicked things in the text, the mistake that we make is to say, oh yeah, yeah, I know some of those people. But the text is saying, that's me apart from Christ. That's me. Okay, so you remember from a few weeks ago, I used the visual picture of Smeagol, the hobbit-like character in Lord of the Rings who becomes, and he becomes enslaved to evil. It drives him to hate. He has a fall. He has a fall, right? Something else becomes his central thing. And that fall leads to evil. It drives him to hate the light. He retreats further and further into darkness because he doesn't want to be exposed. Goes into the caves of the Misty Mountains deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. He doesn't want to be exposed. Tolkien's no dummy. He's telling a story. He's doing it really intentionally. He's telling our story. Our story. About our fall into wickedness, our descent into darkness, our love of the darkness, our hatred of light. We don't want to be exposed because we love our, our wickedness. That's the nature of humanity. And if that sounds harsh, if you're here this morning and you're like, ah, that sounds harsh on the face of it. Listen, I think it's important to remember the verb exposed here has a sense also of shame and conviction. And this is a common human experience. How many of us have felt moments of just like cringe, deep shame, like when we think back on something we said or did, or something even that we're doing, where it's like we feel this, ah, there's this shame attached to something that we've done in our past or that we're doing in our present. And so as a result, like we'll do anything we can We'll, we'll, we'll chew our own legs out of the trap like some, something trapped in order to get out of having to think about it, having to be convicted by it. We don't want to, we don't want to process it. We, we avoid being convicted of these things so that we don't have to face the shame because that shame is too much of a weight on us. We can't handle that. That's why repentance is so elusive. It's very much a part of the human experience. But we get to verse 21, and there's this amazing news for all of us who felt those moments of shame and conviction. Because there are those who do the truth. That's the literal expression. Do the truth. What does that mean? The idea is that they live according to something else. 
They live according to a gospel. They live according to truth. They have a new way of life. But it's interesting because verses 20 and 21, when it talks about the darkness and the wicked, the evildoers, and the light, those who do the truth, they're not like strictly polar opposites the way that it's described. It's not like, oh, you've got, you know, um, these people over here who love darkness, these people over here who love light. These people over here who did wickedness, these people over here who lived according to truth. That's actually not what the text says. Westcott is really helpful in catching the difference. He writes, while the lover of darkness shuns the light out of fear of exposure, shame, and conviction, the lover of light does not prance forward to parade his wares with cocky self-righteousness, but he comes into the light for two reasons, right? So that it might expose that he's wicked too. It might expose his wickedness, not show off his self-righteousness. It might expose it so that it can be dealt with. But he comes to the light that it might be plainly seen that what has been done in his life to make him love light has been done through God. Verse 21, right? But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That seems unintuitive to us, counterintuitive. And yet, so Westcott continues. He says, this strange expression in verse 21 so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because all that has been performed, for which there's no shame and conviction, has been done through God in union with him, and therefore by his power. In other words, Jesus not only steps into the world he created, the created order that actively rebelled violently against their creator in order to give his life that they might live, but in doing this, he provides a means by which they can have a completely new life. No more condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, imagine if Gollum were saved. He's not, okay, but imagine... If he were, the kind of salvation that this text describes wouldn't be what we see happening in Lord of the Rings where it's like, imagine him dragged kicking and screaming, this is what the ring does to him, kicking and screaming out of the misty mountains and into the searing light that he hates. He puts up with it as long as he can, but he hates it. Like the gospel doesn't do that to us. It doesn't drag us kicking and screaming into the light that we hate. It changes our hearts. Like, in the case of Gollum, it would make him smeagle again. It would make him love the light again. It would, it, would, it would bring him back to what life was like before the ring. Not because of him. Not because of us, but because of the grace of the creator who loves us to the point of sending his son to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But how could this be? How could we receive eternal life? Life that starts now and continues forever to the age to come. Life that continues on even after our eyes and mouths close in death. Life that takes a dead heart that hates God and starts it beating again in rhythm with his. Life that actually will be recreated so that we'll have exactly what we long for. Our physical bodies back again. Like we won't be attending our own funeral in a different body. God gives us our bodies back. He recreates everything in the end. How? 
How could Jesus, by giving his life for us, also grant us that kind of resurrected life? Because his life didn't end in the grave. He wasn't just a man who came and died. He wasn't simply a martyr. He wasn't trying to set some example of sacrifice for his people. He is God himself who entered into human history to die and then who rose again. And we have access to this in history. You know, Jesus of Nazareth lived. It's a historical fact. It's, it's universally accepted among serious scholarship. You know what else is? That Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God. That he claimed to be one who would come to die and rise again. It's historical fact. It's also historical fact that he was crucified by the Romans. That he was buried in a known location. Joseph of Arimathea, very unlikely that he was some historical invention. This is... Seen as historical fact. He's buried in a known location. It's historical fact that on that Sunday morning, on Easter morning, that tomb was found empty. That his believers claimed to see him, risen from the dead, claimed to hear from him, teaching them, claimed to see him, eat with them, claimed to touch the wounds on his hand and the wounds, the wound on his side, which was a very unique wound for a crucified man. This is not a wound that most people who are crucified would possess. It's a historical fact that this is what the disciples claimed. Why? The best explanation for the evidence that we see in history is that God raised Jesus from the dead. We have access to this in history. We have access to this in, in the word of God to us. He was raised from the dead. And he can offer, I mean, it's important that we see that this happened in history because it means that he can now offer resurrected life to his people because he was resurrected. Really, truly, not some metaphor of re resurrection. Your resurrection in the future, if you put your faith in him, isn't some metaphorical symbol. It's a reality. It's a hope. It's concrete. He rose from the dead and he offers resurrected life to his people because he was resurrected, demonstrating that everything that he said, you know, if Jesus is standing there risen, are you not going to believe him? If he's actually really standing there risen, are we going to say... I, I hold in question what the things that you said. If he's standing there risen, he's verifying everything he said about himself, everything he says about the world. And he's the first fruits of our resurrection. When we see Jesus' resurrected body on Easter Sunday, we get a full picture of our resurrected body at the end of the age when he comes again to make all things new. And you know what else is a foretaste of that resurrection? The resurrected life within us when we put our faith and trust in Christ to save. If we don't do that, we remain condemned. But Jesus offers a means by which we can say there is now no condemnation for those who believe in Christ, for those who throw themselves on God's mercies, for those who see the central problem that they face and know that Jesus came to deal with that problem so that they can have life with God, so that we can have life with God. His grace transforms our hearts to delight in him as the light of the world and rejoice. He is risen. Let's fill up our voices together now and proclaim his holy name.